I am uh, on the phone with uh, Dr. Sam Yannick, who is a um, uh, uh, chiropractic physician with a real primary focus on immunological dysfunction. He sees patients in uh, in his clinic in North Carolina uh, three days a week, I believe, and he spends uh, at least two days a week researching different topics in immunology, both to help us and to help his patients. He's also an adjunct uh, assistant professor at the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at UNC School of Medicine. And he is the creator of Cogent's Immunology, which is an online uh, functional immunology, immunology course for clinicians. So with that brief introduction, Sam, welcome. In terms of uh, you, obviously, as I just said, see patients primarily with autoimmune dysfunction. Um, can you speak to just kind of what kind of patients you generally see um, briefly? Sure. Well, uh, I see, as you say, patients with uh, immunological disorders and particularly patients with autoimmune problems of all sorts. And the goal is to get their autoimmunity to be as dormant as possible. Right. So what you're trying to do is inventory the total picture of the patient's case and build a map of the patient's case so that instead of thinking of the patient as a patient with a particular diagnostic name or label, you want to try to understand how that autoimmune process is occurring in the total context of the picture of the patient. So for example, uh, I saw a patient this week I've been working with for a few months uh, he came in because he has myasthenia gravis. Now, he's had a, an excellent workup from a, a well-regarded uh, teaching hospital for his myasthenia gravis. But what didn't get noticed was that he also has hereditary hemochromatosis. And his iron uh, saturation was 92%, which is a crazy high number. So sure enough, an MRI shows that this guy's got iron infiltration in his liver, but the point in relation to myasthenia gravis is that iron is going to massively activate the Fenton reaction, which is hugely oxidative and inflammatory. So he's not just a guy with myasthenia gravis. He's a guy with, with myasthenia gravis being massively driven by this other process that wasn't noticed at all. So when you're working with patients who have autoimmune processes, it's very, very important to embed that diagnostic name or that diagnostic fact into a total picture of the case, a total map of the case, because that map is going to let you identify other key factors that give you a way of creating increments of advantage for that patient. So that's the, the point of the work, the purpose of the work, is that mapping of the total picture and the development of a therapeutic strategy to give the person advantages so that they have much better outcomes with their autoimmune disease. What kinds of uh, processes do you routinely look for that may, through those, uh, you know, series of yeah, uh, uh, biological um, mediators, trigger that neuroinflammation? Sure. Well, um, I would say there are two parts to that discussion. One part has to do with the decision of microglial cells about whether to eat a neuron, right? So microglial cells are simply macrophages that live in the brain, and you've got about 10 for every neuron. So 
your brain is really your biggest immune organ, which is kind of a surprise. And your microglial cells are, are pruning neurons and having useful anti-inflammatory effects and protecting neurons and so on in various ways. But also, we all lose neurons every day. And the number, you know, conservatively is about 10,000 a day, which is a bit of a surprisingly high number. But you start off with a very large number of neurons, you know, something in the billions. And so the fact that we lose 10,000 a day is kind of routine. But the question is, how do the microglial cells know which neurons are the dead ones? You don't want microglial cells eating live neurons. And in fact, there are papers with titles like microglial phagocytosis of live neurons. So that's a little disconcerting. The, the point of it, though, is that the way microglia decide which neurons to eat has to do with a series of chemical signals exchanged in an ongoing way between neurons and microglia. But some of those signals are things like TNF-alpha and interleukin-1-beta, which are also signals that participate in the inflammatory signaling system. And those signals trigger microglia to eat the neurons adjacent to them. So the point is that if your brain is more inflamed, you're influencing all the microglia in the brain incrementally toward the likelihood of eating their neurons. So you don't want an inflamed brain because you'll lose neurons over it. So now that takes us to the second question, how does the brain get inflamed? Well, unless you get hit in the head or something similar, the likelihood is that the brain is getting inflamed because the body is getting inflamed. So it's clear in the research that systemic inflammation drives neuroinflammation. What that means from a functional medicine perspective is that anything that is a promoter of systemic inflammation, any kind of trigger or mediator or antecedent, any of those things that moves that moving multifactorial equation toward a more inflamed outcome is going to matter. And identifying any of those from a clinical perspective presents an opportunity to advantage the patient by some increments when you address that factor. So for example, the lining cells of the, epith the epithelial lining cells of the intestine, the epithelial lining cells of the intestine generate inflammatory cytokines in the context of dysbiosis. Right? The, the, the dysregulatory effect of dysbiosis on the GI tract is a driving of NF-kappa-B-mediated activation of inflammation. So if you have dysbiosis, you're going to be more systemically inflamed. Likewise, insulin resistance is known to be inflammatory. We can talk about the mechanisms there, but that's known to be inflammatory. So dysglycemia is going to influence body inflammation, and that's going to influence brain inflammation. The chemistry of stress, chronic stress, is known to be inflammatory via systemic macrophage upregulation of NF-kappa-B. So when a person has more chronic stress, that's going to also be inflammatory. And the list goes on. So any of those things that we're accustomed to looking at from a functional medicine perspective that can be increasers of systemic inflammation, can drive neuroinflammation. Now you drive neuroinflammation, you're changing the chemical signaling between microglia and neurons. Now you're losing neurons. 
So now your dysbiosis is losing you neurons or your insulin resistance is losing you neurons or your chronic stress is losing you neurons. Uh, are there particular uh, inflammatory markers like HSCRP that you do regularly to, to assess overall inflammation? So certainly CRP is useful. Uh, SED rate is rarely useful. Um, but a lot of it you can do with history, right? Because if the patient has achy knees, that's a flag of the extent of their inflammation. And as you start to progress in the case and they say, hey, my knees don't hurt anymore, you know you've moved the needle, right? Or if they have brain fog, if they, if they can't sustain cognitive activity, and then as you go forward in the case, now the lights are back on in their brain, you know you've moved the needle. So some of these lab markers are not as sensitive as we would like them to be. Uh, so, you know, you often see people who are clearly overtly inflamed and their CRP is completely normal, which is a bit, you know, it, it's a bit out of, out of sync because the lab markers are not uh, as sensitive as they, as they could be. Uh, I'm, I'm beginning to be intrigued by the research on complement C1Q which uh, is very much involved in microglial activation, uh, but I, I don't think the research has all the apples on one side and all the oranges on the other side quite yet. Different papers describe different kinds of effects. So uh, it's not entirely clear to me uh, yet what the clinical application of C1Q is, but I, I think if we talk in a year about that, we might, you know, I might have something clearer to say about it. The research is quite intriguing. It's clear that it's a player in the process, but there are papers that make it seem like C1Q has protective roles in increasing microglial phagocytosis of amyloid protein, for example, which would be a favorable effect. And other papers that would show it as an autocrine activator of microglial cells, which would be potentially problematic if their overactivation leads to destruction of neurons. Uh, particular uh, botanicals are you concerned about with autoimmunity or and what are you not? Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Okay, so um, the botanical that would concern me in relation to autoimmunity is black elderberry because black elderberry is great at knocking out colds but it's an interleukin-6 promoter rather decisively. And so it's going to stir up the Th17 cell activation, right? You have a naive T cell, and the signaling chemistry in the tissue will tell it what kind of T cell to turn into. Like it's a utility infielder, and it can play first base, second base, shortstop, and so on, depending upon what the you know, manager says to do. So if you change the chemical signaling so that naive T cells become Th17 cells, now you're promoting autoimmune tissue destruction. So because black elderberry is an IL-6 promoter, an interleukin-6 promoter, interleukin-6 signals naive T cells to become Th17 cells, and now you're off to the races with your autoimmune activation. Now, on the other hand, the way that you downregulate Th17 is by doing two specific things. One is to turn on regulatory T cells, so-called Tregs, and you turn on regulatory T cells with things like 
vitamin D, vitamin A, fish oil, and so on. And part of how you're doing that is with inhibition of TH17. Uh, and so, so in that category also are things like curcumin, resveratrol, sulforaphane, and so on. So those maneuvers that we're so accustomed to in the, in the uh, functional medicine way of addressing autoimmune process, all of those things promote regulatory T cells to promote immune tolerance with the idea that it helps you not attack your own tissue. The difficulty though is, I said before there are two ways to bring down TH17 cells. One way is to promote these regulatory T cells. The other way is to promote TH1 cells. Now, this bears some discussion because it's different from the old view. The old view was that TH1 cells caused autoimmunity. That turns out not to be right. The reason we thought that is because nobody knew about TH17 cells. And the markers, the, the T cell receptor especially, on a TH1 cell and on a TH17 cell look the same on one side. So half the receptor is the same. And until the other side of the receptor got characterized, nobody knew that these were two different cells. They thought the whole thing was TH1 cells. So you had two different cells in a bin together and the label on the bin was TH1. And something in that bin was destroying tissue. So everyone said TH1 cells destroy tissue. When they figured out the shape of the other side of the receptor, they said, oh, look at this. This isn't one cell type. These are two different cell types. Let's sort them away from each other. And when they did that, they realized that TH17 cells, newly discovered, were the ones doing the destruction. And they also discovered that the TH1 cells actually inhibited the TH17 cells. There are very good papers on this in Nature Medicine in 2007 and in a variety of other papers since then showing that the interferon gamma that TH1 cells make is an inhibitor of the ability of TH17 cells to pump out their destructive cytokines like interleukin-17. So what we want to do is we want to promote regulatory T cells with things like curcumin, resveratrol, sulforaphane, A, D, fish oil, and so on. And we want to promote TH1, which is the second way to inhibit TH17. And you promote TH1 with berberine, with bicalin, ginger, sulforaphane, echinacea, things like that. When you promote the adequacy of the TH1 response, that's your second half of the strategy of inhibiting TH17 mediated tissue destruction in autoimmunity. You've talked about, and I've read about uh, your kind of principle of, of your practice of taking the high road. And can you kind of amplify on that a little bit in terms of what you mean about the high and the low road in uh, kind of overall health for patients? Sure, sure. This is a favorite topic of mine, and it comes from the work of James Freeze, uh, who's, who's retired, but um, used to be the director of rheumatology and immunology at Stanford. And uh, in the 80s, he wrote about something called squaring the survival curve. And the idea is that uh, humans tend to decline over time. And so I always draw a diagram for patients 
it's a kind of a three-layer cake, if you will. There's a top band, a middle band, and a bottom band. And in the top band, you're a kid, you run around, you fall down, you, you, know, you skin your knee, you cry for two seconds, you get up, you run around again, you don't care. In the bottom layer, as you slide down the hill, and you can also imagine sort of a line that goes from the top left to the bottom right, and it's kind of a, like a parabola sliding down. As you get down into that lower layer, you manifest some named disease. You know, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, dementia, something like that. But what's the middle layer? The middle layer is declines in function that don't necessarily have disease names attached to them or that have chronic disease names attached to them, but not something that's going to kill the patient necessarily. So the patient might have rheumatoid arthritis or Hashimoto's disease or type 1 diabetes or type 2 diabetes or headaches or, you know, dysbiosis. These things that give us clues about the particular way a person is doing their declining. So our goal is to take people in the middle zone and push their timeline out to the right. So if time is going from left to right, rather than having them steadily decline as they go from left to right, we want to push their line so that it makes a sharp right turn and simply goes straight out to the right so that they are well and well and well and well and well. And when they're 94, they suddenly have a sharp drop straight down to the bottom of the page and they die all in one day. So instead of dying gradually over time and being in and out of hospitals, in the waning years of their lives, they're well, and then on a particular day, they die. So most of us have an Aunt Shirley or a grandma, whoever, that, uh, you know, that lived and lived and lived, and then on a certain day, oh, you know, did you hear that Aunt Shirley passed away? Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, but you know, she lived a long and robust life, and you know, the last day of her life, she was gardening in the morning, she had a little nibble of something to eat. She took a nap in her wing chair, and she just didn't wake up. We, we would all love to have that. And so the task from a functional medicine point of view is to identify the information value of the symptoms people have as they decline and use that information as a way of understanding the map of the case that lets us identify the right targets clinically to help the patient take that turn straight out to the right side of the page and then get the sudden drop off at the end. So all of their morbidity is compressed into that very, very, very end of life. That's the other thing Freeze talked about, which is this phrase called compression of morbidity. You're trying to kick the can down the road ahead of you so that you're well, then you're well, then you're well, then you're well. Then finally on one particular day, you pass away. Yeah, that's a that's a great concept. That's uh, what uh, I believe, Doctor Freeze. That, that's a particular article that he published, the compression of morbidity. And uh, Doctor, you you talked about it very eloquently, Doctor. Uh, that's a that's a wonderful uh, a wonderful place to end on. I think because that's what we're all looking for is that compression, the technical term compression of more or morbidity but what you're saying in a I think a much more understandable way is taking the high road 
So I appreciate that.